Hey, if you're loving Creative Mind, check out some of our past episodes where we dive deep into topics like children's book illustration, video game design, filmmaking, and of course, the most important topic of all, how do you make a living as an artist? So please hit subscribe on whatever platform you're listening on so you never miss an episode. And check out the show notes for links to our Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube page for even more great content. The limitations that are placed upon us in life in general, they, they put us in a state of, uh, uh, of adaptation. It's like, okay, I can't do that. So what do I do instead? And, and honestly, it's that quality that produces a lot of uh, unintentionally compelling media. That is Mike Shafia, one of the producers of the Academy Award-winning short film, Two Distant Strangers. Hi, I'm Bobby Brill, and on this episode of Creative Mind, we go in-depth into the world of producing short films and music videos with producer and founder of Cynodyne Films, Mike Shafia. So if you want your job to consist of wrangling timberwolves or managing a crane shot that passes over dilapidated airplanes with pyrotechnics going off in the background, or maybe something simpler like a few weeks in the middle of the Australian desert, then this conversation is for you. And Mike breaks down really the thinking and attitude that goes into creating and managing an environment that brings out the best in the talent and crew. But before we get into it, please hit subscribe on whatever platform you are listening to and check out our Instagram and other links in the show notes. Now here is our conversation with producer Mike Shafia. Congratulations, what's it feel like to be part of an Oscar-winning film at, at all? <laughs> what's that like, Mike? Boy, it's it's a uh, it's it's quite surreal. I mean, you know, I never I would have never imagined being involved in something like that, um, uh, you know, or, or winning an Oscar at all necessarily. Like that just wasn't on my radar, you know. Um, yeah, it, you know, gr great that it happened. I just it it, it completely. <laughs> it's still kind of hard to process in terms of like that it actually did happen, you know. Right. It wasn't that long ago that you know when, when we're talking about because I, I I wanted to ask you like I have it written down. Just like. So now do you just add two zeros to your quote now? Because it's now Oscar winning producer, Mike Shavia. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, uh, it's it, it's been there, there's been some interesting feedback in terms of like, you know, what what it has meant um, in, in sort of my career moving forward. Um, but, you know, at, at the end of the day, it's like I'm still just kind of, a, a, you know, in it for the uh, the um, the sorry. Let me, let me start over. Sure, sure, it's okay. <laughs> anyway, it's still fresh. It's got to be hard to contemplate. I worked on something that now has a statue next to it for the rest of my career. Yeah, I mean, I mean, to, to be to be quite honest, it's just like um, it's still hard to really process it even now. Mm. Just, just again, like you know, uh, genuinely. Um, it's like I, I I don't I almost don't even know how to like rationalize it as being real because like you know I didn't necessarily set out to be a producer you know um, it, it, when I was growing up that producing wasn't necessarily what I wanted to do um, it was you know more technical fields like computer science so it was it it still is very strange in a way that accolades happen because of a career path that just kind of was happenstance almost. <laughs> well, how, I mean, let's, this is going to be tough. Cause I mean, that's, that's great. Well, it should be easy, but I'm going to, I'm going to press you on it. 
what led you to becoming a film and music video and commercial producer if computer science was the original path? So it's, it's, it's quite a circuitous sort of pathway. So I, I went to school for computer science. I ended up hating that. Like, you know, I didn't want to do that. It was just so tedious and so boring to me. Um, I, I wanted to be a musician. So I came back, you know, I went to school up north, came back to L.A., pursued music. But, you know, and I did that for years. That's that's a really difficult career path to, like, actualize sure. deliberately. You know, there's this, it's, it's just, it's really tough. So one day, uh, a composer friend of mine asked if I wanted to help out on a, a, a short film shoot. And I was like, sure, you know, that sounds interesting. I'll go for it. I really resonated with that, you know, that sort of workflow, the, the, the crazy sort of schedule, the, the, the get it done by any means necessary sort of mentality, um, you know, made friends with the producers on that. And then that kind of set me on the pathway to be a producer. Well, that kind of makes sense. I mean, if you're going to be a touring musician and having to go to small gigs, there is a lot of producing involved in that. So it, it doesn't seem like much of a stretch to go, okay, we got one hour of work and 12 hours of setup to get to this one thing. Then we wrap and go home. Yeah. And that, and that's the crazy thing is that like, you know, all of those, all the skills that, that really are in line with being a producer, those are just natural character traits that I've always had. Oh, really? Oh, absolutely. You know, um, I was always like, the person leading the, uh, uh, the, the group in like high school science class doing like group projects, you know, um, I doing like video projects in, in high school, like I'd be the uh, producer director and, and still that wasn't like a thought in my mind to pursue that professionally. It was just mm -hmm. like, well, this is the thing you do when you're given responsibility, you just do it and, and make sure it's done. You know, I, I was going to say you must've been the responsible one. Yeah. It, it just all kind of like, it all kind of made sense. Let's let's go back to Two Distant Strangers because I want to kind of go through that before we get deep into your your career. You know, it, it, even though it's so fresh, when the script for Two Distant Strangers is presented to you as okay, we need you to work on this. Did you think that Oscar was a part of the process, or did you look at it as oh, this is something poignant, or did you look at it and go, well, yeah, job's a job. Um, I definitely saw it as, you know, uh, something with a message that was going to connect with an audience for sure, 110%. Um, but I also very much felt like it, it, it had a almost 100% chance of getting nominated okay. in the short film category. Whether or not it was going to win, I didn't quite, I didn't quite have that, that clarity, but I was like, this is definitely an Oscar, not uh, Oscar contender for sure. What made you realize that from from that business standpoint, from somebody who's produced enough content to go, okay, this is something that can go into Oscar contention? Because that, that, you say it very calmly, but for anybody who's worked on anything, you know, like, oh, I hope somebody sees this or ah, somebody might see this. Oh, no, this will be an Oscar contender. What does that mean to you? Just for me personally, I was able to to see this script and think, you know, this this links very profoundly with the cultural movement of this of this year, and and what we're going to be looking forward to in, in the new year, um, because we, we shot this back in September of last year. So, yeah, it was just it, it felt very very relatable, and I felt like that that sort of cultural relatability was 
was probably stronger than any of the other short film contenders, okay. uh, certainly for last year and, and honestly for many of the years that I can even remember in terms of, you know, the, the, the Oscar, uh, Oscar short film category. Right. Os- short films in general are always kind of this broad term. It's experimental. It's, it's, it's a long music video. It's, it's a movie that's not long enough to be a movie. It, it's got to be a strange way of looking at things. Uh, I want to ask you a slightly political question if you want to answer it or you want me to cut it out depending on how it feels. Because as a business owner, were you scared to work with this type of content? It, it, didn't really, it didn't really cross my mind that it would be, you know, I, I mean, sure, it, it's polarizing subject matter, but it didn't really cross my mind that it would ne- necessarily um, impact my business in, mm-hmm. a, in a negative way. Okay. Mostly because, like, I don't know, I, I, I just don't feel like my involvement in this, in this industry would be targeted that way by virtue of me being involved in this movie. And I, it's a question I'm throwing out there because it doesn't. I don't know how to answer it or ask it either. It's like, because part, part of me would want to go, great. There's that one little one percent. It's like, do I want to make a stand? I should be making a stand. There's nothing wrong with making a stand, but do I want to make that stand? This was this was Trayvon, you know, expressing something that was very obviously very deep and sincere to him, and so it's like that that element itself was was compelling. From my, from my perspective. And, and, you know, at the, at the end of the day, it's, it's telling, it's basically telling like a personal story. It's telling mm-hmm. a, a personal experience and some people aren't going to get that experience and other people will, you know, mm, true. That's the way it goes. Right. When a script like this comes in and you're thinking, okay, there is some Oscar or th- this has more value as a piece. This has legs. This has a lot of importance to it. Does that change the way you look at it from a production standpoint? It does, um, it, it, or at least it did, you know, because you, you could sense that there was a, a much stronger investment from the production team and everyone else involved to, like, see this through to the end. Okay. There was a, there was, everyone, I mean, it, you know, and again, it's not like I'm some brilliant genius that just like, oh, I saw the fucking potential. It was like everybody kind of saw that this had that potential. You know what I mean? Okay. Yeah. Everyone was on their A game and we're always on our A game, of course, but we're really, really, for really real on our A game today. Okay. Yeah. I mean, and, and like everyone across the board was like, they felt the importance of the subject matter or at the very least they realized that, you know, this was going to be, this was going to make an impact regardless. Plus, you were shooting in the middle of COVID on top of that. So forget the subject matter. Forget it could be, you know, a story about two birds talking on a wire. You're still shooting in the middle of, okay, now we have all this extra silliness to deal with. Um, how did that play into the production? Well, it made it made everything much more expensive. Okay. You know, as, as you can imagine. Um, and, and that was, you know, so that was September. So like the, the, the lockdown lifted what was that like late August mm-hmm. or somewhere around there? Yeah. Right. We were right about there. Yeah. So there was very little time to like adapt to the new COVID workflow mm-hmm. before we all just had to kind of like figure it out as we went. It's, it's gotten more efficient nowadays, but it was definitely a, uh, I mean, it was a challenge. It was a challenge getting everybody tested at the, at the rate that uh, SAG uh, demanded. Or, or that they sort of uh, required for the nature of the shoot. You know, we spent a lot of money on COVID compliance officers and protocol and things like that. 
So, you know, it was just, um, you know, it, it was, it was difficult in, in the sense that it made things, it delayed the process. So okay. we'd have to start every day with, um, you know, COVID checks. And if somebody didn't get a test at the right time, they weren't allowed on set. Oh, wow. Right. So that, that affected some of our casting decisions and some of our crewing decisions, because when, if, if someone wasn't with us the whole time, they would have to get retested. And sometimes just getting that coordinated was a very, very difficult feat in and of itself. Right. Because, I mean, your, your whole shoot was probably, what, two weeks long? It was five days. Oh, my God. Five days? Yeah, right. So, I mean, if somebody's not tested, I'm sorry, you're, you're off the show. Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I, thankfully, we, you know, we managed to, we managed to, like, make it through. You know, to, to get through the deadlines, the, the you know, the, um, the turnaround deadlines for the tests to get results. Mm. So I don't think it necessarily like I don't believe it, it actually impacted our, you know, the, the end result necessarily. But it did place a lot more stress in the interim period between the, uh, the, the my, my co-producer and myself about like sweating whether or not it was going to we were going to get the test on time, you know, because because then we're like, you know, oh, oh crap, you know, if this doesn't if we don't get the test, then we can't use, you know, we can't hire this AC or we can't hire this background actor. What are we going to do then? So a lot of so, things like that. Wow. So now now that we, you've got a little bit more experience, is that do you see that as being um, kind of the new normal, so to speak, as we saying over and over again? Uh, yeah, it's going to be backing people up more. Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I think that, the, you know, obviously the turnaround times have gotten faster, um, the tests have gotten cheaper, but it's it's still going to be just that little added element, you know, like there's 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 the permitting, there's like worrying about all the different sort of uh, um, union regulate regulations and, and rules and guidelines, um, and now craft services must go right out the window then, right? Well, see, that has to that had to be adapted too. So okay. It's uh, it basically, you know, craft services have have to be served like a like a like a buffet almost. Okay. So you know, a, a crew member will go to the craft service area and say, you know, can you please hand me that orange to the craft service worker? You know. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Which and you know we're laughing about you know oranges and granola bars and Twizzlers, but that's a major part of making even a low budget film work is keeping everybody happy. And if you can't keep anybody happy, it can devolve yeah, absolutely. You know, a little, little quick. So for, for this film on the production side, were you involved all the way through post-production or pre and shoot? Mostly just pre and shoot. So I was brought in by my, uh, my co-producer, Nick Veneroso. So he was, he was for all intents and purposes, the, um, like the, 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 the lead producer in the sense that the production company uh, and the other like executive producers of the project, they they went to him for like entrusting him with the responsibility of like producing this. And then Nick realized that this was going to be a, just a, a, a titanic uh, uh, endeavor to, to to produce because we only had about two weeks of prep time. So oh so you know I've known Nick for you know about ten years at this point, and he calls me up and he's like, hey, I need you to you know. <laughs> Do you want to do you want to be involved in this project with me and you know have uh, sleepless nights and just kind of work continuously for for the next few weeks? Of course, I'm a producer. That's my job. Yeah, exactly. I was like, hey man, you know, you need me, I'll be there. So it, it was it was Nick and I that really just took the reins in terms of like making the thing happen. You know, 
um, it, it just finding the locations, uh, finding the, uh, the, the crew, um, you know, many of the department heads and just being there like, like day in and day out, just making sure that everything stayed on, on time and on the rails. And obviously, you know, that was a, that was a really difficult challenge to do perfectly. Um, cause you know, again, just when you have limited budget and limited time, but you're still trying to achieve quality, that's a really difficult balance. Plus you're, you're, you're mimicking New York in LA, which is not uncommon. Um, and you know, LA and, and on the West coast, there's, you know, you can find New York cop cars and taxi cabs ready to go and lots of picture cars, but you know, that had to be a massive challenge as well. So let's get into that, you know, producing role and how that works on something like this. Uh, and then on a lot of the other projects you work on. So, you know, for two distant, distant strangers, and we see this a lot. And for a lot of people who are, you know, getting into film or even working in film, the, the role of producer, and then all of the prefixes that come up to executive producer, co-producer, associate producer, assistant producer, and, and ad nauseum. Can you define for us what you see a producer is in your role and then say a producer like the executive producers or, you know, someone like Lawrence Bender, who, you know, has this great name and this great pedigree. And you're like, who's doing what? Overall, you know, a producer is someone that takes ownership or stewardship of the project. They're, if they're an executive producer, generally they're, they're money people, you know, they, they put up money or they're, you know, financially responsible for it in some way, or they, you know, they own the the rights to the project or something like that. That what's that great line from Boogie Nights of uh, he puts up all the money for our projects. It's a very important part of the creative process. Right. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Yeah. So yeah, I mean that's uh, that's kind of the one of the bigger the bigger roles there. Um, but really, everything that's every other like qualifier that goes before the word producer is just kind of uh, indicating some other you know some specific element of the the ownership stewardship managerial process. Okay. Um, you know, a, a line producer is someone that essentially manages the budget and is something of a, a production management figure. Okay. So that'll be the individual who, you know, uh, tries to make sure that everything tracks on the, the, the allocated budget line, line items, um, will likely hire, you know, other production management staff like the supervisor or coordinator. Um, and you know, can sometimes even, higher uh, department heads if the directors or the other producers don't have particular uh, uh, people in mind. So that, that's a common one. That's one that I most commonly do is line produce, especially with the things that like are running through through my company. I'm generally, you know, the, uh, the executive producer, like owning, taking ownership over the project and then also line producing in, you know, writing the budget and then seeing it through uh, to uh, execution. Okay. Making sure that, you know, we've only got $10,000 that's not $12,000. That's preferably $9,000. Yeah. Because right. there's something that will invariably go just crazy and sideways. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And that's, and that's part of where, you know, it's, it's important. You know, the, the, the foresight is one of the most important qualities of a, of a producer to know, like, you know, okay, we have, we have this much allocated, but very easily we could see that, that dollar amount increase or, or see an overage there for unpredictable variables. So you plan accordingly and you say, well, I'm going to add an extra percentage of uh, like contingency cushion and that's going to keep us from going over budget. 
Okay. Well, we talked about it earlier. So can you walk me through then when the script came to you, when the project came to you for specifically, you know, we'll go over Two Distant Strangers first. What is it you do as, a, as the co-producer on this to make it happen? Well, in a, in a situation like Two Distant Strangers, um, where it was definitely a, it was like an all hands on deck, you know, just, just, all energy focused to just get the thing done, like moving, moving us from point A to point B. That's just kind of how I, I, I think about it, you know, because in, in other situations where you might have a lot more pre-production time or development time, you can kind of like craft the, the process, craft the, 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 you know, orchestrate the, the, uh, the production workflow in a way that really makes sense, you know, like, okay, we're going to do this at this time. And, and, you know, we're going to use these people and everything just has like a, a, a nice, easygoing sort of a, you have a plan and you can just execute that plan because you had the time to really put that plan together for two distant strangers and, you know, other short film shoot situations like it, um, where you only have like a couple weeks to plan. It's something where you're like, you're trying to build the vehicle as you're driving it. <laughs> that's that's kind of oh, how it works what a nightmare so you know you, you try to start with the very foundational elements first right like the first thing that that i i wanted to do was make sure that all the you know as many of the people that i could trust were staffed in the key positions so i went out to my location manager friend greg because i knew that with what we were doing he was going to be the best best suited to help us find these these you know different locations in a way that didn't you know create a huge logistical complication because, you know, everything starts with the locations, you know, that's, that's going to be your creative background, obviously for, for the actual, you know, the characters to, to play out their scenes. But then also, you know, it's going to dictate so much in terms of cost. You got to worry about permitting. You got to worry about parking. You got to worry about, you know, uh, uh, crew holding and base camp and all those other things. So, you know, having a really competent location manager, or just having a, a solid insight into locations in general, it it really does shape the whole trajectory of that production. Well, yeah, that makes sense. I mean, you know, a lot of people forget, and you know, they teach a lot in film school. And if you've ever, you know, the first set, you're like, "Where are the bathrooms? Oh, there's 17 blocks that way uphill, up 15 more flights of stairs, and there's one." Sorry, I mean, you know, I've watched Two Distant Strangers, and anybody who's seen it, it's like, yeah, you've got a story that conceivably takes place in generic outside, could be anywhere, but the interior is extremely important. What were you looking for in that type of situation? Um, not only for this film, but you know, when people are thinking about, okay, sm I've got it, I can do it easy, it's one location, should be simple, except what are you looking for? The logistics of a location are really the first thing that I think about. If, if a director or you know some other producers like this this location just it, it creatively is is perfect it, it totally fits what we're what we're looking for my my first thought is yes but can we afford it or you know are we going to be able to like park all the crew nearby that's that's where my mind goes to so you know and and that's not to say that like i i don't care about that creative element of the process like because obviously that matters but it in in my opinion it just can't be the first thing you think about because all of these other elements can make it prohibitive. Right. And, and if, if that's the case, then you can't even shoot there. So why even bother? 
Yeah, it's funny. You know, you, we, you've said parking many times, and it, it really comes down to the first thing that is going to start and ruin your day. If it's, you know, I can't park. I paid 10 bucks to park. Who's going to give me my money for parking? And I'm three hours late. Yeah. I mean, and that's that's the reality is that if you don't have convenient parking squared away, um, that can just delay the whole day quite significantly. And of course, always by an airport because that makes filming so much easier, correct? Yeah, of course. Absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. For exteriors, because again, a lot of times we're trying to steal shots because oh, it's easy. It's, it, it should be simple. You know, for exterior shoots, um, what are you looking for when it comes to something like that? Again, something that's not going to be a permitting nightmare, because a lot, you know, obviously we permitted all of our uh, all of our locations, and for what we were doing on some of these exteriors, we needed to um, basically own the road, own one of the lanes in the street um, right right in front of the building. So that what that means? What what's owning mean? Basically, we had to completely blockade that lane so that we could have like crew and camera and equipment in the lane. Um, not obstructing traffic or not in the danger of getting hit by traffic. So just quietly, easily blocking an LA street with no issue. Right. Yeah. So, yeah, right. So, you know, that, that, that involves um, booking LAPD officers to, you know, basically control traffic, the cones and the barricades to make sure that, you know, the, the lane is nobody veers into it or thinks that it's open in any way. Um, and those are all like, you know, cost and logistical considerations. So that's, that's again, to echo my point about the interiors, you know, I'm like, okay, this, this is a cool exterior. This, this works aesthetically, creatively. Now let's consider how it's going to work, you know, financially and logistically. And, you know, I'm, I'm always, I'm always quick to say, all right, let's not get too settled on one idea yet, because if, if it turns out that there's some, you know, permitting caveat that we can't avoid, that's going to restrict us from shooting here, then we better not spend time thinking about it. Are you are you also like running around with like a, a, a sun chaser app? Like, what's it going to look like? What's it going to be? When's the sun going to come here? Certainly. Yeah. I mean, that that can that's certainly important, especially when you're doing like out in the middle of a, like an open field type of shoots, because the, the time of day is going to, you know, influence, obviously influence your lighting. But then it's going to um, influence how your your uh, rigging team is going to come up with the different you know, silks and solids and, and, and light adjusting, modulating uh, uh, equipment to either block the sun or reflect the sun or, you know, what, or what have you. Right. Cause I mean, when you, as I, as I watched it, I was like, oh, this, they, it was, you watched a short film and, and a lot of people who watch short, short films, you actually have the time to kind of dissect how they did it. And especially when you have a, a style of film that's kind of a a repeating scene over and over and over again, you can kind of go, well, okay, one day's all bed, one day's all coffee, one day's all coming out the door, you know, you, you break it down. And you know, the exterior is like, oh, open shade, easy. That must be a rare thing to find, um, but so important to, you know, actually getting something done. I, I was like, oh, that makes perfect sense. And is that something that you sit down and talk more with the with the cinematographer or is that a, a director discussion or how does that how do those logistic conversations go? Generally, a conversation with the cinematographer and their, uh, you know, key grip and gaffer to figure out like what's the what's the ideal lighting? What are we going to expect at this time of day? And is this going to work for the time of day in the, in the narrative, right? Because you might shoot in the afternoon, but you have to sell it for being morning. And if the, if the daylight doesn't, you know, is not conducive to that, 
you're going to have to shape it in some way or color grade it, you know, after the fact. How did those conversations go when they're difficult? I'm sure there's easy conversations where somebody's like, yeah, sure. Okay. Makes sense. But when they're difficult, how you do you as a producer not get your way, but figure out the way to make this production work? My position is always like, you know, you don't have to listen to what I'm saying as like Michael Shafia himself. This, this isn't like my opinion that I'm communicating. I'm simply communicating the hard facts. We have a limited amount of time. We have a limited amount of money. And we still want to do this of quality while also making sure that like people are safe. People are like paid what they're being paid. You know, we're not like overdoing a day or anything like that. So like, I'm just going based off of those very practical sort of pillars. And, and I, I approach every situation, every subject or every issue from that same sort of understanding. So it's like, well, we, we need to do this at this time and we're going to get all this gear to do it. It's like, well, we don't have the money for that. So what's the comp, what's the alternative? What's the compromise? It's like, okay, well, maybe the time of day shifts, you know, you go back into the script and you can say, well, maybe creatively it's just, it's different, you know? That, that's a thing that seems to be like so, I don't know, so difficult to, uh, to actualize most of the time is like, this is all fictional. This is just a fictional like environment. <laughs> Things can right. be changed, you know, like we, we like, oh man, we, we, we couldn't shoot in this, this interior place. Uh, what are we going to do? It's like, well, it's somewhere else then. It just takes place somewhere else, you know? Hey, hey guys, we're, we're making a movie. Yeah, I mean, you know, I, one thing that I always go back to is uh, just in terms of like practicality is uh, uh, Reservoir Dogs. And, and it, was, it was funny to me that, you know, Lawrence Bender was the EP on Two Distant Strangers because like, you know, he was somebody that I really looked up to, you know, mm. uh, as, as like you know, a role model in a way. Okay. Because uh, uh, Reservoir Dogs was, was executed with that sense of like practicality in mind. You know, right. You don't see the, uh, the heist. You see the aftermath of the heist. Right. Cause a heist is expensive. So you just imply that it happened and you just see them running down the street. Right. Mm-hmm. You don't see like the gunfight happen. You just see that somebody's wounded, you know, and then most of that movie takes place inside that warehouse setting. Right. Right. It's all, all one location. It's, 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 it's theater at that point. Right. Exactly. Exactly. And then, uh, you know, when, uh, um, Steve Buscemi's character runs out, uh, he conflicts with the uh, police, but you all, you hear it, you don't ever see it. And that's such a brilliant way to sell what happened. You know, everyone knows what happened at that point, right? But you didn't have to spend the money to go out there and actually set it up and film it. Right. Because, I mean, for example, if they were to shoot a gunfight scene, you know, what's the first thing you're thinking of in cost? Because there's what? Guns. Yeah. Fake guns. That's always a, a nightmare. Oh, yeah. I mean, like a, the, the weapons master, the, the special, you, you need a pyro, a pyro team to, to handle that. If you're using blanks and stuff, uh, that's expensive. Um, you know, the, the blanks can be expensive and the personnel is pricey. Um, permitting, that's a, the first thing I think of when I think of gunfights is a permitting, you know, just nightmare. Because mm-hmm. depending on where it is, that's going to be a real, that's going to be a real issue with the community. Um, and you're going to need, you know, a fire department or a fi- fire safety officer you're going to need like actual LAPD there um, or, you know, retired cops to be like the, the overseer to make sure. The presence. Sure. Yeah. yeah right. Uh, making sure that the actors are okay with it, making sure that they can like functionally convincingly take a hit and, and make it look real. 
Um, so all of those things are like my considerations when someone even mentions mentions a gunfight, you know? You know, unless I know that we have the money for it, I'm just like, let's not even go there. Let's just do something else. As I'm thinking about it, you're explaining to it, there's got to be a, okay, for 90 seconds of screen time, we've just earmarked this percent of your budget. Yeah, exactly. Yes. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's, that's the reality is that you know, when directors or writers throw out ideas, they tend to not necessarily think about all of the you know, implied or um, associated costs that it's going to entail. Because in their mind, it might be like, well, it seems like it's so simple. And I was like, yes, it may seem that simple, but it's really not, you know? And that's really the case in most situations, you know? Oh, well, let's just, just throw a bunch of, throw a couple guys out there with some, you know, guns and then it'll be fine. It's like, no, it, it just, that just doesn't ever fly, you know? <laughs> I can't imagine where that would ever go wrong. Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> You know, just to kind of, you know, finish up Two Distant Strangers, because, I you know, we could spend forever talking about it. But I really want to get into, you know, you as a producer, you know, music videos, commercials, you know, Oscar films, I'm sure don't come to your door every single day. But, you know, for, for Two Distant Strangers, were there any, like, logistic problems or, or anything that you looked at and go, I'm going to really have to double down on my producing hat on this? Oh, absolutely. I mean, every element of that shoot was like, this is going to be a challenge for sure. Everything from like the the permit coordination to you know coordinating special effects and the the pyrotechnicians and 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 so on and so forth. It's like in reading the script, you just knew that all these were going to be pretty significant considerations. Explain that because I mean you you did a great job of telling us why we don't want to do guns, why we don't want gunplay, and this is a film that gunplay is the main character. What was what was some of the stuff that you had to do um, specifically for this? How how did that play out? Was it one day, three days? How did that work? We were doing uh, the the pyro and the uh, the, the the weapons weapons brandishing. Um, I think it was almost every day. We had at least one. There there might have been one day out of the five that we didn't have weapons or special effects or uh, yeah um, the pyrotechnicians. Yeah, it, it was pretty pervasive because, I mean, that's that's one of the central core elements of the, the movie is Carter, you know, obviously facing this demise repeatedly over and over and over again. Mm. So, you know, we obviously had to shoot that stuff quite frequently over the five days. Oh, wow. That's got to be that's got to be crazy because normally you would you would try to book that, you know, as little as possible, you know, jam it all into one day and get all your shots off. But so you're saying four out of the five days is is gunplay. Well, yeah, I mean, because, you know, we we had to we had to group our, our days based on the location because, you know, moving sets are, or moving base camp is just a really time consuming, uh, tedious and sometimes costly issue. So, you know, we um, the if you remember in the movie, when we're at that exterior, that building, that that big like apartment building uh, and uh, um, Perry's uh, apartment. Those were the same, those were on the same block, basically. Okay. So we had a base camp parking lot, which everyone parked in, and we had all of our, like, trucks and, and holding and all that business. Video village and all that. Right. Um, and then we had, and then right next to that, that uh, base camp was Perry's apartment building. And then right uh, down the street was the, uh, uh, the facade of, of Perry's building, or the, the exterior of Perry's building. So, you know, we, we grouped that together so that we didn't have to move. So we knew that, you know, all right, we're going to do everything, you know, over the course of these three days, once we're base camped here in downtown, and we're just going to try to group together those pyro shots as, as convenient or as efficiently as possible. 
but you know, it was just it was just the nature of the way that the uh, the the script plays out that we had to you know have pyro teams in basically you know most of those scenes for the most part. As you're explaining, I'm thinking yeah, every location there's there's gunfire. Exactly. You know, Perry's apartment, you know, it's the SWAT team that comes in. Carter's a, a building, uh, obviously Merck guns him down there. Um, and then all of the like montage sequences, you know, those, those weren't necessarily, uh, I, I, I don't think we did too many, too much pyro there. Uh, we, we did some, some squibs, um, mm-hmm. but I don't think we were doing much in the way of, um, obvious we- weapons brandishing every day when, when we were in that location. The thing you don't want to do when your script is about this, that's got to be, you know, a, a fun producing nightmare question mark or, or uh... right. Yeah. I mean, cause like, you know, there's, there's non pyro ways to sell like gunfire, you know, there's a, um, the, the ones that we were using, I think, I think exclusively we were using, um, air, like airsoft air cartridge, uh, handguns. Mm-hmm. So they weren't firing blanks or at least they weren't firing like anything that would be considered a pyro blank necessarily. You know, obviously Carter had uh, squibs. We were using uh, squibs for most of, uh, most of his scenes. Hey, just want to take a very quick break and say thank you for listening to Creative Mind. If you have any questions or thoughts, let us know. Click on the show notes for our email or head over to anchor.fm slash creative mind to leave a voice message. Tell me how you started Cynodyne and how you formed your company and, you know, put your shingle out there as I'm a producer. Well, so, so going back to what I was saying about how I got into the production world in general, uh, or just initially, you know, cause, cause I, I didn't really, I didn't know what producing was when I first started like mm-hmm. production assisting, but in, like immediately just because that's just the way that, you know, I'm wired. I thought to myself, I could do this, you know, <laughs> Was it was it really that attractive? Because not a lot of people, you know, when you get when you step on film set, there's there's you know people who like to be in very specific roles, and everybody starts off as a PA, and it's always pick up trash, get somebody something, clean up. That's it. You know, was that the enjoyable part for you, or was was there another creative role you were more fascinated with, or or was it really just being the man making things happen? That that's really what it was. Um, I really hated PA work. You know. But I also hated the like the hierarchy that I perceived from the commercial uh, uh, the commercial world. I was working on a lot of union uh, commercials as a PA, mm-hmm. and and when I first started out, there was just such a I don't know I perceived it as like such a condescension when people were like, "Well, you got to move your way up to you know coordinator and then supervisor and blah 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 blah." Like right, there's right. there's there's a model there's a pathway you have to take. And I was like, you know, fuck that. I don't want to do that. I just want to produce. Like, I don't want to wait based on some, you know, imposed sense of like a, a process. I just want to go right to the thing that I want to do. So within within a few months, I was uh, basically producing my first uh, like, you know, label com- uh, music video. And, and, and that was just because I was putting myself out there to th- the directors that I met on that first short film that I was helping out on. Uh, and it just kind of like, it just spawned from there, you know, like, like, honestly, my, my entire career is really based on meeting, uh, probably two or three people on that very first thing that I helped out on. And it was, uh, the producer, Sonia Maru, cinematographer, Jan Michael Asada and director, Mike Diva. Like I met three of those people on that one job. And then they like, they set my entire course of my career. In, in a weird sort of, in, yeah, I mean, in a weird sort of way, it just put me into these different sort of scenarios that I just wouldn't have been in without meeting them. And 
I wouldn't be where I am today if it wasn't for meeting those three individuals. Oh my gosh, that's that's pretty amazing. Um, so was it was that then the the that set you on course to music videos or was it short films? What was the path you really wanted to veer into? So I mean. I took the path of least resistance, honestly. You know, I, I just said, I want to work. I want to make things happen. I want to be like active. So I just opened myself up to whatever came. And as is usually the case when you're starting out, there's a there's an abundance of music videos because that's that's like the commercial format that is just more common, you know, mm-hmm. especially in the non-union, like low budget world. Right. Non-union, low budget commercials or are, are, uh, music videos are just like being cranked out all the time. Yeah, because the the one day wonders. Let's let's just go twenty four hours a day. So, so explain that. Ex- explain this low budget versus union uh, idea. So people who have an idea of, of like I want to do this, but what does that mean? What does it mean to produce a music video? Because you know we see music videos and it looks, you know, we've seen really good ones and that we know they're hard. We've seen some really terrible ones and you're like I can do that, but. In reality, no, you can't, or or maybe. What what does it take to produce music videos? What's 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 the magic behind it? Well, you you have to be you know very organized and very clear in communicating um, limits, expectations, standards, whatever that might be, and and you know communicating with the label or the client or the director or the artist that the thing that you want to do may not be feasible exactly as it's being written. You know, sure, like if you're trying to make a name for yourself and trying to like, you know, trying trying to get in there, you might make sacrifices or say, all right, I'm going to I'm going to invest a lot more than than maybe I I should because I really want to make this happen. You can you can be wildly successful with that approach. And, you know, that that approach can can yield some pretty, you know, pretty remarkable content, you know, uh, uh, viral videos and such that wouldn't have happened if it wasn't for the person that was just like giving it their all to make it happen. Right. Um, so it, it's just a matter of, you know, you, you got to understand, like, you, you got to know yourself in a way, like know your boundaries and what you're willing to talk, to- what, what you're willing to tolerate. Give, give me an example of that, because, I mean, you, you know, when we had talked earlier before, before we you know sat down to do this, you, know, you were explaining that, you know, with music videos, there is a lot of stuff that's actually taken out of your control, as in you've got the directors that are chosen and DPs. And some of this is really. Um, controlled by the labels, and, you know, in a good way. And, you know, we're not saying controlled by the labels, but I'm sure there's that too. Like the, the, the limitations that are placed upon us in life in general, they tend to, you know, they, they put us in a state of, uh, uh, of adaptation. It's like, okay, I can't do that. So what do I do instead? And, and, and honestly, it's that quality that produces a lot of, you know, uh, unintentionally compelling media. Because you, you ended up doing something that you didn't expect, you didn't think was, was going to be the reality, and yet you had to confront it. And then how you react to that moment, you know, it can, it can produce something that you didn't even, you, you didn't even know was, it, it can reveal something you didn't even know was a part of yourself, right? Mm. You know, and, and, and it, can, it can lead to, you know, uh, creative solutions in a, uh, a short film or a music video that end up making the project better. You do know you're describing your job as somebody who's just jumped out of plane for the first time going, I can't believe how amazing it was. You're, you're making this sound really exciting, man. I mean, I'm not, I'm not kidding you. I mean, it's like, wow, I've never had anybody put, put it into that kind of words. And 
I didn't know what producing was when I wanted to do it. I, have a vi I didn't even have a concept of what the title was um, prior to me being uh, 20, 22 years old. Like 22 and, and under, I had no concept of the producing job description. Have a, I didn't have a, um, a model in mind of what I had to conform to. I just said, you know, this is something that seems like it resonates with my sensibilities. Uh, let's, let's just do it. You know, let's, let's just make it happen. In solving these creative issues that, you know, that get you excited about your job, you know, let me pick another video. Uh, Louisa Johnson, best behavior looks easy. You know, pretty people doing pretty things out in a pretty area. I mean, that seems to be, you know, the basic treatment you get for a lot of music videos, make everybody look pretty and have a good time. I'm guessing is slightly difficult. Yeah, yeah, especially in that particular instance, because you know, the director ended up wanting to shoot in the uh, the Mojave Air and Spaceport with the airplane airplane boneyard airplane. Yeah, the, the infamous airplane, airplane boneyard, just miles yeah. and miles, miles of dead, dead planes out in the exactly, desert. exactly. Visually arresting, very cool. very cool. Oh yeah, certainly. Um, but executing the concept in that area was just extremely costly and extremely logistically challenging because we, you know, we didn't have the budget to do like an overnight to have mm -hmm. everybody like, uh, you know, boarded for, for the evening and then shoot the next day or, or shoot and then, and then board. Yeah. Arrive so, fresh, fresh or at least, at least, hey, you're going right, to break. Right. It's, it was definitely one of the, um, one of the hairier productions, uh, cause it was just an extremely long day. Uh, there were there were so many different elements to that, and I mean, as you see from the final product, the the, the fire and the you know the, the like the, the the crane shot and and you know she's on the wing and you know there's just a lot of elements that were very difficult, um, including like the the, the bus the, the you know the, from the very beginning like every element of that was just a really uh, uh, logistically and cost uh, uh, costly. Uh, um, Element, yeah. It just yeah. looks like a money suck. <laughs> oh, for sure, for sure, you know. And and so with music videos, I mean, because this is such, you know, music videos are such a weird genre where it's like we're going to be experimental and it's going to be black and white and somebody doing something and it's black and white and it's easy. Or it's going to be, hey, we're going to skateboard or, hey, we're going to, you know, do animation or stop motion, you know, from a producing role. You know, what do you look at when it's a music video, say different from a short film um, that you go, OK, how you know, this is the, the stuff I want my crew and these directors to know so we can actually get this feasibly made. Really, what it all comes down to is communication. The, the better you are at communicating to your crew or to your client and the better you are at like receiving how they communicate, that is what will will set you on the path to success or you know misery because if if you can connect to somebody on a level that you know on an emotional level because because a person will tell you something but it's may not necessarily be the like the content of the words that they're saying it's the the meaning or the you know the the, the emotional intent behind how they're expressing it or what they're trying to sort of evoke by you know expressing what it is that they're telling you so being able to, you know, understand where a person's at emotionally and you know, communicate on that level, say, you know, I, I hear you, I, you know, I understand where you're coming from. Like, let's address those concerns. Let's, let's address the actual, like, emotional heart of the issue. And then, you know, we can work our way back out of that 
to find something of a middle ground or a compromise or, you know, a, a mutually equitable arrangement. I'm going to ask you a, a somewhat cynical, snarky question, and it's not meant to be that way. But when then you get a treatment that says, OK, I want somebody dancing on a wing. How does that play into it? How does that conversation go then? That was difficult because we we were kind of beholden to uh, another production entity, kind of calling the shots in terms of creatively, it's it's got to be this. And there was not a whole lot of leeway with with that one individual that we were speaking with. And yeah, I mean, sometimes that's just going to be the reality. I mean, I mean that that transcends all disciplines, all industries, right? Mm, sure, for sure. You're gonna you're gonna interact with some people that you're gonna try to connect. You're going to want to like appeal to their, you know, their humanity, their pathos in some way, but it may just not be in the cards. They're going to do what they're going to do. Can you give me an example of where it did work, where you guys had that conversation and, and the person you worked with was like, you're right, let's, let's, let's look at this in a more realistic way and, and find out what, may, what, am, what am I trying to say as opposed to what I just keep hammering my finger down to. Because, I mean, with music videos, it's got to be insane where you're trying to get so... You, you are working with a piece of content that we want to believe has a lot of heart and emotion to it. It is a song, even if it's a pop song. And, you know, a music video is so important. And oftentimes the, the video has nothing to do with the music. It's just it's advertising the artist. But, you know, where does it come into where you're going, well, what do you want to say? What, do you, what are we actually talking about here? I'm having a hard time, like, recollecting... A, spe- a specific <laughs> I'm moment. I'm so sorry. No, no, no. It's, no, I mean, because like, like honestly, you know, when I think about it, the, the unfortunate reality is that a lot of the times uh, directors, they can be very uh, difficult to work with or mm-hmm. uncooperative when they don't want to deviate from their idea. And in those cases, it's like, it's going to be tough. Well, because right, a music video really is a, a director's medium at this point, correct? Exactly, yeah. I mean, they're 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 the ones chosen. It's it's not necessarily the artist. It's the director that you want to hire. I mean, you know, this is this, you know, you know, for those of us of a certain age. I mean, all you had to say was hype Williams, and it was like, oh, this is important. This is you know, this is I'm looking at a hype Williams thing. It doesn't matter who's on it. And there's so many hype Williams videos where you've never heard the artist anymore. Um, and it's like, okay, this is this is a thing. Well, then you know, on some of the projects you've worked on, what are some of the ones that you're the most proud of? That you this really hit all of my creative, emotional producing buttons where I was like, wow, this is, we, we've done some good work here. Um, I, I think that that happened with the, uh, the Rag and Bone Man video. I really did enjoy how that turned out. I mean, it's a beautiful video. It, it's, it's gorgeous. It, w- it was a great example of that teamwork mentality brought to life because, you know, it was a, it was a concerted effort. I mean, just for the, for the sake of not even speaking of the broader like international effort, but just what we did locally here in California. Pink's manager was such an amazing, like, helpful entity in trying to sort of figure out how we can sort of sort out the best logistics and the best, the best ways to make this a reality. Mm-hmm. And, you know, honestly, without his help, without him, you know, being as, as, as much of a team player as he was, I mean, th- th- that whole thing could have turned out differently. So here comes, the, you know, some of those big g- general questions that are, you know, are really important. What makes a good producer? And I know you've, you've talked a lot about that stuff, but I want to give it the caveat of what was the best advice that you received that has helped you to become a good producer? I never really um, sought out advice because, I, I mean, well, that's, that's not true. I, I, I ask a lot of questions, but I never really got answers that were anything akin to like a, a secret spell or like a ma- the magic words, right? 
there was never at any point in time like ancient secret wisdom. You know, for 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 most for most of my career, you know, I kept thinking like, oh, there's there's going to be the you know over the horizon, there's going to be this 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 land of of milk and honey type of thing, right? It's like everything's going to be just smooth sailing from there on out. But you know, in in talking with so many you know, producers who have been around the block for you know twenty thirty years. The, the general consensus that I, I've, I've uh, kind of uh, gathered is that, you know, you may have more money, you may have like bigger talent, but the problems are just going to scale accordingly. You know, <laughs> you're, you're, you're just going to be dealing with the same sorts of things now as you're going to be, or, you know, 10 years from now as you're dealing with here. You're still going to be dealing with client expectations, studio expectations, artist or, or actor expectations, and that's never going to go away. You know, those are the things that that producers working in like the non-union world struggle with all the time. Is like, how am I going to make how am I going to make all these people happy with a limited time and limited budget? And you know, the one thing is just communication. I know I've said that before, but like being able to communicate clearly and and effectively, expressing your wants, your needs the realities of the situation and being able to hear somebody out and dip diplomatically, you know, resolve disputes. That's going to be the single biggest asset because, you know, budget management and, and, you know, logistics and coordination and all that, that's very important as well, but still it comes second to your ability to connect with other humans and help them to understand the rules of engagement. Wow, that's yeah, that's that's not something I ever heard ever in a film class. Coming up, what what are some cool things you've got coming up that you're really excited about? Or, well, I'm I'm working on uh, developing a lot of unscripted you know TV shows right now. I've worked on a bunch of those as a camera operator, so it's like those are uh, those can go every which way but loose. Oh yeah, that's for sure. I mean, back in 2019, I was a um, I was one of the executive producers on this this uh, docu series called um, Lightspeed. It was basically a uh, like a six-part uh, miniseries that followed uh, these uh, solar car race teams as they made their way from from Darwin to Adelaide, Australia. So over the course of like I think it was like four or five days, they drove um, you know two thousand miles to uh, uh, you know see who see who had the best uh, engineering acumen. That was my like first big foray into uh, unscripted. To, to go back to the question you asked me earlier about the the project that I'm I'm most proud of, that would be another top contender because it was a boy, it was a challenge to to execute that. It was a challenge to get the camera team safely two thousand miles across the uh, Australian outback in in four four days. L luckily, we did have like some local support on on that one. You know, you had mentioned something before we started that I thought was really great that you're somebody who wants to help others succeed in that. Talk, talk a little bit about that. How does that, how does that play into your role as a producer? I, I guess my, my communication style is, you know, my affection style is like a acts of service. So like, I like to show that I care by doing things for people. And, and you know, when, when I, when someone, you know, asks for help or, or guidance or, or what have you, especially when I can tell that they have like a very, you know, genuine soul about them. I will do uh, whatever I can to really try to like help them make that a reality. So is, is this that moment in, in, in any kind of thing where I, we can actually say, hey, if you want to reach out to Mike, go to his website and you know, ask him for some mentorship? Absolutely. Absolutely. Oh, that's great. 
So that is Cynodyne Films. I'm going to plug it heavy. We'll plug it before because I think that's, you know, very few people do that. So that's Cynodyne Films, C-I-N-E-D-Y-N-E films.com. We'll put that in the show notes as well because that, you know, kudos to you, man. Not, not a lot of people are willing to do that. So, you know, next big project, what can we expect? Or is it, you know, no, not, you said unscripted stuff, but no, no full features or is that, is that a different animal? That's, that's, I I mean, yes, that's, uh, that's also something that I'm actively, you know, pursuing and developing, but the, uh, the, the road to feature execution seems a lot longer than the unscripted, but, but I mean, I could be wrong. I, you know, as as tomorrow might come and I'm, you know, producing a feature, who knows? So there you have it. Everything you wanted to know about producing. And it's a good thing, too, because as more and more art and design career opportunities are on the rise, employers are always on the hunt for the next generation of talented and, of course, skilled creative professionals. And at Academy of Art University, you will get those work-ready skills that employers want. You can study on-site in downtown San Francisco and, of course, anywhere in the world with our online programs. To request info about our 40-plus areas of study in art and design, including film production, photography production, UX design, and more, visit our website at academyart.edu slash creative mind. I'm Bobby Brill. Thanks for listening.